Sarah Marshall. Alex Steed. Now tell me, Sarah, what is this show about? This show is about us finding excuses to talk about movies with our friends, basically. Yes, it is. Sometimes we talk about feelings along the way. We often talk about movies. Yeah, I would say movies are definitely pulling ahead. I read was reading some mythology like I do when I'm down or need to put my brain in a good place recently. Mm-hmm. And I want to talk with you about the myth of Uranus or Uranus, as is also known. Uranus is made of gas. <laughs> I didn't fully know this, and I'm bringing this up for a reason because we're, we're talking about Guardians of the Galaxy. I didn't know the story of Uranus, which is he didn't like that his mom slash wife Gaia mm-hmm. bore him a child. Wife guy. <laughs> mom, wife guy. <laughs> bore, bore him a child with 50 heads and 100 arms, and he didn't like it. Oh. So he said to her, you put that back in there. And she said no, and he tried to force the baby that was really horrendous, based on the description just now, back into her, and she didn't like that. Yeah, that's not good for you, even if you are a goddess. You don't want that. And one of their sons, Kronos, around this time was like, hey, I should be in charge now. And she was like, yeah, you should. (laughs) She gave Kronos an adamantium scythe. Hmm. And he used that. And there are different explanations about how this happened, but ultimately he used it to cut off Uranus's dick. Mm -hmm. And several things happened, and I love all of them. (laughs) Either the dick was thrown or it was hit with such force that it it went. Interesting. And it becoming a missile, (laughs) it spewed blood and semen everywhere. I'm thinking about whether I could cut something that would then send it throwing. I feel like he just threw it. Yeah, I feel like he looked at it on the ground and threw it. So he threw it and then blood and semen got everywhere and everywhere the blood and semen was new creatures were born. So that's a fun story. I love that. (laughs) Me too. Tell me why. (laughs) Well, you know, having grown up with the book of Genesis. Oh, yeah. I like that better as an explanation than like, and then God created all this life and you're like what where how and you're like he just did move on keep it going every myth i read from any culture that is not the christianity i grew up with and i and i have a lot of respect for people who are believers in the christian faith and and whatever who are not shitty about it but you could have more semen in your oregon story everyone i read i'm like man my religious upbringing was real boring compared to what else was on the table (laughs) i mean the bible's like there's some gross stuff in the bible there's definitely some hot girls doing beheadings and stuff like that. Yeah, for sure. But yeah, I don't want to say there's like no scary stuff in the Bible. But yeah, comparatively... Not as outright gnarly. (laughs) You know, I also grew up reading Greek and Roman mythology, and I always just loved those stories because like all the gods were just assholes, and like that just made sense to me. (laughs) Total assholes. And so here's the other thing that I love about what happened after is while Uranus was feeling his pain, he said to his son Kronos, who cut his cock off, this will happen to you one day. Ooh. You know, it's a really interesting story about generational strife in one way or another and and about literal and figurative castration. But of course, you know, fast forward a handful of years of millennia or however much God time works. And Kronos does become a dick because he's now so scared of the warning he got from his castrated father that he eats every one of his children. Oh, no. And he's the one through the Saturn, really, through the Goya painting where he's like just, it's like the feral thing eating the baby. And that's the painting where like, it looks like he's on a diet, on like a no (laughs) baby's diet. And he was, his wife just came in and flicked on the light and was like, Uranus, I see you with that baby. (laughs) I just learned this as a part of all this. Do you know that was painted on the interior wall of his house? No. That's the canvas of that? (laughs) There are a lot of horror movies that came out this year that could be upstaged by a Goya painting. Yes, easily. And just spoiler alert for anyone who's wondering what happened to Kronos, uh, one of his kids got away and it was Zeus. And that's how we got Zeus. Yeah, totally. You haven't heard of the prequel of the prequel's prequel. I mean, you've heard of Uranus. One of them, yeah. 
<laughs> Zeus is the dad you end up with. And it's like, you think Zeus is a dick, but his dad was an even bigger dick. <laughs> and his dad's dad was a bigger dick than that, which like, that's what I grew up hearing. <laughs> So I bring all this up because we talked about the Guardians of the Galaxy movies with our friend Fangirl Jean and a big part of that and a big part of the Marvel Universe like literally again talks about a continuation of the mythological gods of the Norse gods but uh, we get some mythical god dad action in the second Guardians movie. We sure do. We got some dicks in space in this one (laughs) and like a big dick Roving around space. I don't know what verb to use, but that's Kurt Russell. (laughs) Any words of insight going into this episode? Well, I was saying to you earlier, I think that we have found ourselves in the springtime in a kind of a horror fantasy mythology world lately. And this wasn't intentional. Like we didn't decide, like, let's do a bunch of genre stuff in the spring, but we did. And I'm really happy about that. And I feel like we have ended up in just a really fun part of the galaxy. And I hope that you're in kind of a fun part of the galaxy this week. I hope that we've synced that up a little bit. Oh, that's really nice. I love that. So uh, don't be a dick in space. Let's be losers in space. Yeah, and get ready for a fun and heady chat with Fangirl Jean. Just a couple of quick things before we begin. First, Wire Dads is made possible with support by Knack Factory, a commercial and creative content production company based in Portland, Maine, that does work throughout these here United States. If you need your message committed to video that makes people pay attention, talk with Knack Factory. And of course, it is made possible with support by our Patreon supporters. Thank you so much. It's made possible by folks like you. We appreciate you doing this and helping us out, helping us exist. Our Patreon episodes lately have been very lively. We had one about the last unicorn this last week. Uh, We talked about the animated Hobbit the week before, and we are going to talk about the Snyder Cut in our next episode because people are telling us we need to talk about the Snyder Cut. So we're going to do it. We're going to dive in and see what the hell it's all about. I think that's it for now. Let's get into it. Let's go talk about the Guardians of the Galaxy. Hello, Sarah Marshall. Hello, Alex Steed. Have you ever seen the Guardians of the Galaxy movies before? I had seen the Guardians of the Galaxy 1 before. For this episode, I watched the sequel for the first time, which really takes some of the joys of that movie and and deepens them and daddies them. (laughs) It's like Guardians of the Galaxy on ecstasy a little bit. And I would say that the first time I saw Guardians of the Galaxy, it was when it was in theaters and... You know, and many listeners of this podcast will know that I am the kind of person who gets really excited whenever Michael Rooker shows up doing anything in anything. (laughs) And so when he like showed up in Guardians of the Galaxy, not just for like one minute as he often does, but as like a main character, I was like, oh my God. (laughs) And then the sequel is like just so much more Rooker. It just made me so happy. So here's the reason why we're doing this, Sarah. We're going to have our special guests introduce themselves in a second, but Marvel dads. So dads in the Marvel universe are a huge deal. Because those are the only movies we're allowed to make anymore. Exactly. But it's, I mean, it's a continuation of stories we've been telling for thousands of years. It's modern mythology. There's literally Norse gods and the Norse god family in the movies. And so this is probably the dadliest of all of the. That's not true. If we're talking dads by volume. Exactly. We wanted to kick off a conversation about just sort of visiting Marvel dads here and there, seeing what they're up to. And we thought that no other than our friend Fangirl Jean could talk us through this. Jean, could you introduce yourself? Yes, I'm Jean, also known as Fangirl Jean, and I'm a nerd that talks about nerdy things on the internet and a lot of Marvel. <laughs> Tell us about dads in the Marvel universe. What's going on in here? Well, um, I actually, I remember I actually constructed a whole Google Doc detailing the dad themes 
through each Marvel movie, including The Incredible Hulk. Yes, you did. <laughs> and all the phases, because, you know, overall in Marvel, you've got the phases one through three. We're starting four right now. And I really do feel, whether it was in completely intentional or not, there is a dad arc mm. about, like, you know, who is my dad? Phase one is very much, who is my dad? Am I becoming my dad? Those kinds of themes. And then the second one is, Mm -hmm. oh my gosh, I might be my dad. And oh my God, my dad's a piece of shit. (laughs) And then phase three is very much like, okay, now I'm a dad. What am I supposed to do now? Mm. The themes of fatherhood go way back. One thing that that it really struck me about thinking about heroism and fatherhood and how the construction of these two things, obviously they're related because patriarchy and all that. But I think it's really interesting to to take things like this and dig right down to the root of it. When we understand that motherhood has a very, you know, as it's constructed around gender and whatnot in a lot of cultures, is essentially tied to the biological of the person who carries a child, births that child, and then, you know, nurtures it physically with their body, right? But then what is the other person, the non-birthing parent, how is their role constructed in society? Mm-hmm. And that essentially tells it what, what a lot of masculinity has been constructed as, as the person who maybe protects, mm. who maybe helps shelter. So understanding that like motherhood is a construction of this idea of nurturing, then fatherhood has had to create itself and justify itself as everything else. Mm. And yeah. heroes especially, you're seeing the whole hero's journey as a process of child trying to figure out how they fit within a family dynamic if they don't give birth to a child, which means that they are a protector. Are, mm. um, and also fatherhood is a lot of the central power figure of that mm. nuclear family. And so you see a lot of that idea of the death of a mentor, death of a father, really is about like, once you become a father, you don't have a father anymore because you have your own family unit. Mm. Anyway, long philosophical diatribe, but we see that connection, especially in the MCU, a lot of the conflicts, especially about leaderships mm-hmm. of teams like Civil War, are really about like, who's the daddy? Mm-hmm. And and people going, I'm the daddy. But They should have called it the who's the daddy <laughs> cinematic universe. They really should have. I mean, they're not subtle. And as we get into Guardians of the Galaxy, it's, it may not be the daddiest, but it's the least subtle of the this is about dads and this is yeah, about totally. my things with my dad. Maybe the least subtle in a lot of ways, which is nice. So to kick off, Sarah, can you just can you tell us not what happens, but just walk us through the arc of these movies? Yeah. Well, I would love to talk about like what Guardians of the Galaxy is is it's funny like I saw this movie in theaters and I didn't watch it again until this week and I think that this also might be a reflection of the fact that I don't watch that many superhero movies like I see them kind of I see some of them so maybe this is something that is totally played out and everyone's super tired of by now but I remember at the time really loving and feeling it was kind of revelatory that this movie used humor in this way because one of my big problems with superhero movies most of the time is I'm like, who are these people? Like, when do they watch their shows? When do they have downtime? Why don't they (laughs) joke with each other? And the problem that a lot of movies have, like I have this problem with horror too, where like the stakes of a humorless universe have a hard time feeling real to me. It just feels like real life if people are having kind of gallows humor about being in a bad situation, for example. And so I feel as if Guardians of the Galaxy like came in and like maybe helped establish the tone of like the whole arc of the rest of the MCU. But basically, Guardians of the Galaxy is about a half human, half space guy played by Chris Pratt, who everyone really <laughs> loved when this movie came out and now they're tired of him. And he was abducted from his home planet Earth on the night his mother died of cancer. He was raised by space pirates who are called the Salvagers, I think, who are led by Michael Rooker. Ravagers. Ravagers. That's so much better. What Salvagers would be like if they were like driving around like Pearl and MST3K, like in a VW bus. Like, this is a perfectly good armchair and someone was going to throw it away. Like, looking at like all the rural driveways in space. That I would actually watch that show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay, and so he's raised by the Ravagers, a ragtag, somewhat lovable, also very scary team. Is space pirates adequate? Yeah. Bandits, if you want to be fancy. Yeah, led by Michael Rooker. Then we cut forward to he is a space bandit himself and kind of like built in the model of Han Solo. He's like a freelance doer of shady things, basically. And the first movie is about him, through circumstance, finding a ragtag team slash family with whom he saves the galaxy. And then the second movie is about him, a lot of stuff, but basically him finding his paw and having a game of catch. (laughs) And then listening to Cat Stevens. (laughs) But the story also involves a theme that I think is a very interesting part of American dad culture, which is like, your dad has to die for you to become a man. And it's like, so I have to kill him? And it's like, well... Uh, we never had this conversation. (laughs) Goodbye. (laughs) You know, and it's like, so is he supposed to die? Like, does he have to? Like, that's part of our dad culture, too, in in this here society. Yeah, I mean, it is kind of has a imperialist type of root of like, you know, prince doesn't become a king until the king dies. Right. And to some extent, also, like, part of how we conceptualize growing up is the death of the idea of the parent, too, which I think is definitely what Peter goes through, especially in the mm. second film. Really fast. <laughs> yeah, real fast. It goes from <laughs> woo to oh God. Yeah, but I think that is definitely universal. How did you feel about these two movies when they came in? And, and what do you think about Sarah's take on on it helping steer some of, is steer and inject some of the humor into the series? Well, I think I agree in the fact that I think Marvel kept, trying to work in humor and figure out how it worked. Like they knew to try to do it. (laughs) Right. Well, and I think it was like Robert Downey Jr. came in and was like, this is going to be funny whether you like it or not. Also, like he's a funny person. I think you can write not very funny things for him. And he's like, I'm funny. Yeah, I always like kind of consider him the younger, a little more road hard version of Robin Williams when it comes to, you know, like, you know, he's definitely got miles on him. So he's not as bubbly, but he's always going to make a joke out of something, Mm. whether or not, you know, it's serious or not. And I do feel like the following Mm -hmm. movies, there may have been a little bit of like, we'll do a thing like Downey did. Make this funny because it's not funny enough. Right. It's like, be funny. And it's like, no, you have to hire (laughs) funny people then they'll be funny. Like you can't, and they can even be hot. You know, you just have to cast for that. (laughs) You know, to your point, the Guardians, I think what it did was it made the characters aware that they were in a Marvel movie. And I think that that is, you see that, you know, then kind of processed and digested throughout the other movies. And especially like uh, Infinity Wars, we got a lot of those great moments of like, Mm. especially like with Tony, meeting up with the guardians of the him having these moments of like Mm -hmm. these are the people i have to save the universe with (laughs) and i think they're finding their way of of being more self-aware in the humor but yeah it's still yeah my take uh it's actually pretty funny because when you told me that we were going to be doing these ones these they're not my absolute unfavorite but they are not necessarily (laughs) my favorite but I'm really glad we did it because re-watching them now having time and space because when I first saw the first one and then saw the second one I was so tired of mediocre white dude Mm. movies and here you go (laughs) which is Chris Pratt's like that was really his rise and fall right I mean like I'm not saying the casting was wrong when it came to him but right especially for him because you had the Lego movie you had Guardians of the Galaxy and then you had the Jurassic world Mm. movies where he's yeah you know I feel like maybe he wore out his welcome in the Jurassic because that was one where it was like okay what are you bringing (laughs) to the table here sweetie like 
like, if you're going to be annoying, you got to be a chaotician <laughs> or you can be a sincere paleontologist or something. Right. This isn't it. Right. And there's only so far that riding motorcycles with raptors can get you. And he really just needed to be doing that through the entire movie for me to put up with him. <laughs> I'm glad, though, that I revisited because I came back with a, a little bit more of a forgiving eye and a little bit more awareness for myself of what were the things for me that are always kind of frustrating, which is nothing wrong with this, but films that are made by and for distinct masculine point of view about culture and the experience of mm. being a dude. And this is like first one mm. especially suffers from what I like to call the uh, ready player one syndrome, mm -hmm. wherein, you know, you've got the 80s nostalgia, but there is like a level of 80s nostalgia for a certain Gen X division of men mm -hmm. who are essentially kind of reprocessing the trauma of boomer men. Mm. So like this one, especially what I found was fascinating because I never read the Guardian of the Galaxy comic books. So I had to go back and do a little bit of research to kind of mm. see like how, how did they change? By the way, just for the record, Yondo is a sex bomb in the comics. Mm. Let's just establish that. <laughs> he is a blue hot man. I would argue that Michael Rooker blue is Michael Rooker is a sex bomb. <laughs> Thank you, Alex. <laughs> I am not saying that Michael Rooker, uh, and his beautiful asses cameo in Mallrats. Yeah, oh, yes. but maybe in a less specific way. <laughs> yes. <Yeah. laughs> oh, and I, I share that love of Michael Ver I did not realize he was in the movie until I saw it. And I was like, it's Merle Dixon. <laughs> yeah. So what I found was interesting was that this comic, or at least Peter... Quill and his story started in 1976. Mm. Oh, wow. Yeah, so, like, the music choices for the movie, very resonant, very spot on. Yeah, he's a bicentennial baby. Yeah, and Peter's story is, you know, kind of similar in the comics of that his mom meets this flashy space dude, gets knocked up, and space dude takes off, and Peter grows up without his dad, and eventually meets his dad as an adult. And again, like, I feel like that is a very distinct experience, uh, most definitely. I kept writing Vietnam War all mm. over my notebook mm. about, like, that generational impact in the 80s. So those of us who were Gen Xers in the 80s felt that, like, reverberation of the aftermath of the Vietnam War of, and of fatherhood. Sure. You know, absence of father. Whether your father actually was alive or not, there were a lot of fathers that were absent mm. post that because of things. And I feel that effect both in the music, it resonates, but also in the story where this kid is kind of lost. He's trying to figure out masculinity and he has very distinct construct of what it is to be a dude. Mm -hmm. We can see and we can point out with the Han Solos and whatnot. And that construct is very much, you know, reclaiming of masculinity after the mm. breaking down of it post-Vietnam. So That's interesting. Yeah, and like is Han Solo, like I guess he is a really important figure in Gen X masculinity. And I'm like... What's Han Solo's deal? It's just he's he's a big smartass is the main thing, right? Like, what? who is he? He's a loser. <laughs> he shoots first. We know that. <laughs> he drives a rust bucket. He is the dude who cruised around in the van and got high with high school kids outside in the parking lot. Uh, that is Han Solo. He'll allow anyone to work on his ship, apparently. Just anyone right? he meets. <laughs> <laughs> Matthew McConaughey and Dazed and Confused. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Totally. Right? Wow, That's so what good. I love about Alderanian women. <laughs> I get older, they stay the same age. Like, you see that construct in Peter of, you know, he's living that, you know, mm. magnum P.I. lifestyle of, you know, going to planet to planet, hooking up with as many girls as he can. Yeah. Which, in the second movie, he cites that that's what Yondu is like. Mm -hmm. He, you know, lives without rules, but in a really shitty ship with a bunch of ne'er-do-well bandits that are mm -hmm. kind of, hmm. yeah, I, de I definitely see those parallels there around what masculinity in that specific era looks like. Mm. I feel like having Yondo as your dad is like having like Dennis Hopper as your dad. <laughs> it's like, it might be like cool to everyone looking in, but it would be a fucking nightmare to have Dennis Hopper as your dad. Because <laughs> they don't know about the time he like, wasn't there like Dennis Hopper was in that Neil Young movie and he was 
trying to like do tricks with a knife and he like accidentally like he cut an actress pretty bad something like that you know i don't know if that's true but that is true (laughs) (laughs) you know what i mean right my dad was like not you know not a yondu but like he was a character, and the thing about having a character for a dad is that characters are great from a distance. Yes. <laughs> right? It's really nice when they're not your dad. Characters should live on TV, because you can turn the TV off. <laughs> the reason I picked these movies to start off with is it felt like two movies had the most contained dad storyline, whereas all the other dad mm. movies in the Marvel Universe take at least five to seven movies. Oh, God. Oh, wait, did I say that the right way? It's a lot of movies. You know, like like Tony's dad issues come up in one way or another in every movie Tony's in. But they're in, like, little bits. Yeah, exactly. So this is, like, dad story A, dad story B. Boom. <laughs> <laughs> right? It plays into Thanos, who's obviously the the top three big daddies. The dad you know? of it all, yeah. <laughs> the John Voight of the daddies, yeah. really. <laughs> that is the truth. He certainly is. Thanos is the John Voight of the daddies in the Marvel Universe. But you're right, like, this is the most concise, and the other ones often retread mm. over, like, Tony goes through a lot of the same crap again and again, and that is one of the great benefits of, the, of these two movies is that it, like... It may hammer the point home, but it gets it it gets it done and it doesn't drag it out for well, hopefully it won't drag it out in the next one. <laughs> Sarah, you saw the second one for the first time. Walk us through your impressions a bit there and, and tell us how you felt. So I knew that in this movie, Peter was going to meet his dad. I knew that his dad was going to be Kurt Russell, and I knew that he was going to be bad news. That had all been spoiled for me. But I was like, wow, it's Kurt Russell. God, it's nice to watch Kurt mm. Russell walking around, being Kurt Russell. And I think Kurt Russell was a, auditioned for Han Solo and was one of the options. Yeah. Isn't that interesting that to think really about? It yes, makes it sense. He's got that, like, dimpled, smart-ass totally. face. <laughs> and then I always love it when I have, like, a true childlike reaction to a movie. And, I, you know, my feeling about superhero movies is that, like, The ones that I love most know that they are for children and, like, the child within us. The part of us that wants to go, like, wow, that's really cool to see. And not to be like, well, you know, there isn't really sound in space. Like, that's not, I don't think that side of us needs to be engaged. So there's a reveal, I'm going to say it now, where Star-Lord's dad, Kurt Russell... (laughs) Ego. His character's name is Ego. (laughs) The enemy father's name is Ego. (laughs) (laughs) Subtlety is for French people. (laughs) Kurt Russell reveals that he is the one who gave Peter's mother the cancer that killed her. And I gasped. I gasped. Oh, yeah. Like, literally, I gasped. It was amazing. Because you always say, like, you're like, wow, I gasped. But you didn't really. You're just, like, sitting there. (laughs) That twist worked because it is, like, it took me by surprise. It's, you know, there's a certain amount of betrayal that you see coming and expect. And then, like, that additional layer really pushes it over the edge. And then we basically have to watch Peter battle his dad's master plan to make all of the universe into himself. Is that it? Yeah. (laughs) Ego's, you know, propagation of himself across the galaxy does feel like a generational marker for me of, Mm. you know, I don't know anybody whose parents haven't at least been divorced or been remarried, you know, if not multiple times. Mm. And that was definitely a significant, which makes sense because I think it's 75 or 76 where no-fault divorce became legal Mm. across the United States. Mm. God, that's recent. Yeah. I mean, I like this movie. I I bawled in the movie theater when I saw this movie. Well, and also I really want to talk about the fact that like one of the only heroes in this movie is a child trafficker. That's very well worth talking about at some point. And just that one of the only heroes in this movie is Michael Rooker. Like that's also worth talking about. Michael Rooker, the child trafficker. I don't know. I mean, it's obviously it's like fantasy on so many levels. Like it's literally fantastic. And then it's it's fantastic in the story dynamic. But to see all these accelerated 
storylines where you have this imperfect stepdad ultimately who mm. kind of is able to have an opportunity to explain to his son why he was the way that he is and do one last grand gesture and I know that it's wish fulfillment but yeah. it's just like man I wish someone tried a fucking last grand gesture with me mm. you have that which is really nice and then I love the relationship between the sisters too mm-hmm. and we know that I can't remember anyone's name for the life of me but I Nebula and Gamora The blue lady and the green lady. And I love the green lady's face all the time. (laughs) These movies aren't about father-son dynamics. They're also about, like, the complicated elements of being in families together. They're about being the son of an evil dad and also about being the daughter of an evil dad, which I really appreciate. (laughs) And how how differently it manifests. Yes. Seriously. And being the daughter of an evil dad pits you against the other daughter of an evil dad for, for survival. And having a custodial or non-custodial evil dad. Right. What strikes you about that, Jean? It definitely struck me in the first movie that both Peter and Gamora were essentially in that teen phase of like running away from home Mm. slash rebelling against dad. And then definitely in that same parallel of like trying to define themselves outside their dad, like in the very opening of the film with that whole Indiana Jones situation. Mm -hmm. Actually, the, the, oh, now I'm not going to remember his name, but the guy calls him a ravager because of his clothes and he says just an outfit (laughs) and then he tries to manifest himself as star lord and in a similar vein gamora is trying to break away from her dad again like not as developed about like what she suddenly like planetary destruction is where she draws the line opposed to like you know Mm -hmm. the legacy of genocide but you know you know tony montana doesn't kill kids we all have our personal (laughs) lines who knows why absolutely absolutely (laughs) gamora and nebula especially like that was one of my other kind of like things that annoyed me about the movies but i'm learning to kind of you know embrace them it really suffers from the uh, trinity syndrome Mm. Mm, what's that trinity syndrome is essentially let me say i wrote down the quote for the ordinary dude to be triumphant the strong female character has to entirely disappear into the subservient trophy character Mm. oh like trinity from the matrix yes yes yeah i definitely think that the second film tries to kind of take her out of that love interest while still also kind of like making that love interest situation more defined but yeah of her and peter she has a way more interesting and compelling backstory Mm -hmm. and her relationship with nebula was the thing that i found the most fascinating about the second movie i wanted more of that and for me Mm. rewatching this time it made all of the things that happen in infinity war and endgame with those two even more emotional for me. And that was where my emotions were, was knowing what's coming for the two of them. Mm. There's the Han Solo thing with Peter, but I also feel like he's very Peter Pan Mm. in his construction. And then his relationship with Yondu is very much a a Pan hook Mm. type thing. Because like we find out in the second movie that Yondu's had a tracker Mm -hmm. on Peter's ship this whole time. And only decides to go after him when there's like a bounty on it. Mm -hmm. And you get the sense that this is a regular situation where Peter like goes off on his own, like runs away, air quotes, and then, you know, finally gets dragged Mm -hmm. back home by Yondu. Right. Well, there's that part that the Sean Gunn, is that guy's name Sean Gunn? Yes, Sean Gunn. Because Yondu's like, like adopted son or something like he has like kind of a son relationship. And he said at the very end of the second movie, when he gives him a Zoom record, I mean, not what's the recorder? that he gives him yeah he gives him the zoom player yeah yeah he said that he said that yondu said that you'd be back into the fold at some point like meaning that this is like a cycle that happens on a very regular basis Mm. that's why all the guys you know have their mutiny is that they feel like this cycle of letting peter go and come back on a regular basis is showing some softness on his part you know being a dad makes him you know not qualified to be a space pirate (laughs) yeah and like the dad as nemesis thing feels you know like having a nemesis is like a way of maybe accessing your dad feelings i actually have it in my notes about dads as antagonists and that it's definitely a common theme in action and mostly like masculine heavy movies where like authority figures are essentially dads chasing after Mm. unruly children who are the criminals right everyone wants us to watch catch us if you can catch me if you can Can. or catch me if you can sorry (laughs) 
is like that movie, right? It's like a dad chasing a son the entire time because of his relationship with his dad. Or like The Rock, where it's like you have to do whatever they had to do in that movie. I forget. I guess like stop a nuclear standoff. But like your dad is this ex-con who's negging you the whole time. Yes, yes, absolutely. <laughs> or Last Crusade. Holy shit, yeah, it's, it's everything. <laughs> Your best, that's what losers say. Winners go home and fuck the prom queen. <laughs> it made me remember the ending of Pirates of the Caribbean, where, you know, Norrington, who has been this uptight, follow the rules, mm. but, you know, suddenly goes, well, let's give the par- a pirate a, a head start. And I was like, that has been in every action movie I watched <laughs> as a kid. And I never understood, like, so we're not, it's the Smokey and the Bandit, you know, kind of like, oh, shucks, he got away this time. We'll get him next time. <laughs> well, it's like Batman and the Joker, I guess. Like, I, I always got to have that pirate out there so we can chase each other again. Like a bottle of gin in the toilet tank. I guess rum in this case would be appropriate. Whatever. I really love, well, I mean, I kind of am, I'm very troubled by, but I also love this thing that I think is such a part of American film, like, Western film, however we define that, certainly superhero movies and action movies and stuff, where, like, men, they kind of have intimacy with women sometimes. Sometimes they really do. Like, sometimes you have a whole adventure with someone. Like, I think Speed is a nice action movie example of this. Like, you bond, you really find your equal. But a lot of the time, they're like, yeah, there's a woman. We know you have to see a woman but you know who you really have intimacy with in life? The master criminal who you're playing cat and mouse with or whatever. And just this like a nemesis is the person who allows you to feel evenly matched. Like that feels like such a part of these stories to me and such a part of how we understand masculinity. Mm. I definitely think that violence is probably one of the only forms of intimacy that is acceptable in toxic masculinity. Mm. Mm-hmm. That intense you know, emotionally loaded relationship, as long as one of you dies, before, you know, at the end, it's fine. Then it's not gay. Right. And not saying that, like, all of these, I mean, Slash does come, Slash fan fiction does come from something, but I do think it, it is. Right. I mean, there is definitely a dearth of media that talks about emotional intimacy between men. Mm. But I think this is where that kind of extension of the Hayes Code has kind of continued with us, where we can't say it's gay. Or it looks gay, but if, if everybody's covered in blood and somebody mm-hmm. dies, you know, by the end, then it's totally not romantic. It's not gay if we're killing <laughs> each other. And one other aspect of the woman as an object is the whole, like, it's not gay if it's a three-way. You know, you have a woman there in between the dudes mm-hmm. and that, you know, either she's a chew toy being pulled between them or she's just kind of there to re- remind us that, you know, mm. you know, they're straight because there's a woman there and they're definitely going to do something. But let's actually focus on the real story, which is these two men who are either father and son, mentor, mentee or mm-hmm. deadly enemies end up having the most full relationship in the story. My favorite version of that, and I, I've probably said this before here, and I know I've said it to you, Sarah, but my favorite version of that is Tremors. Yes. Because those two want to fuck each other so hard, so hard. I think it ends in a high five between the two. Mm-hmm. And there is zero sexual chemistry between Kevin Bacon and the the woman who is put forward as a love interest, who I think that's the last movie she was in because uh, they yeah. probably oh. it didn't go well after that. But that's my favorite version of that dynamic. That's the one that doesn't <laughs> even try to hide it at all. It's just like, this is what we're doing. Yeah, similarly to Newsies. They're like, there's a girl, but whatever. <laughs> I feel like this is a very American idea because I've read people and I think like the early 19th century came over from Britain and were like, this is a very gender segregated country. Like the men and the women are separate at parties. They don't talk to each other. It's very weird. Like if a British person is calling you weird in the 19th century, like you have, you have to think about some stuff. <laughs> I feel as if it's hard for us as a country historically to like even facilitate culture that suggests that men and women are capable of emotional intimacy with each other. Like, I think we're, as a nation, we're such big believers in the concept of, like, 
marriage as like a helpmate arrangement. Like you got married so that someone can make soup for you and you can chop wood for them. That's the deal. Right. Like, yeah. I mean, I think that goes back to the problem of the nuclear family, which uh, does not deal with like a community or an extended family. Mm. And we came out of that idea of the only other dude in your house is going to be your brother or your dad. And those are the most important people in your life. The only other women, you know, are your mom or your sister. Yeah. And if your dad doesn't like you, then you're not likable. <laughs> You're not a dude. You're not a man. If you don't have a dad, how are you a man if you don't have a dad? I mean... And you'll never learn how to shave because no one will teach you. And then you'll just walk around unloved with a big beard. And nobody will catch ball with you. You know, mom can't throw a ball. Mm-hmm. Well, mom's dead because you gave her cancer. <laughs> uh, I did want to talk about the mom cancer thing because it, it really struck me. I expected something like that i didn't expect for them to have him just literally say it out loud yeah but it really did strike me again with all the themes of abuse dynamics within families that's going especially there's a part in the second film where we get nebula and gamora talking about the cycle of abuse that was that they went through with thanos where he pitted them against each other Mm. like again not subtle whoever lost fights Mm -hmm. got parts of them replaced which was essentially what nebula you know she was essentially physically abused Mm -hmm. for not being as good a daughter as Gamora, who was being psychologically abused, and them having to kind of come to terms with the fact that they were just trying to survive in a toxic family. Mm-hmm. I think it's really interesting now, you know, because essentially what we see is Peter's dad's telling him that he killed his mom. That's essentially domestic abuse. Mm. I don't know how I feel about how that carries through into Infinity Wars and how Gamora is essentially murdered by her father. Mm. You know, whether they're even like thinking about those dynamics, but understanding that your dad is the person that's hurting or killed your mom, it it definitely has a huge impact Mm -hmm. on how you see fathers and how you evaluate yourself. Like, who are you in that reflection? And it's also like a fairly common narrative. A lot of people have dads that have killed their moms. Like very few of us are celestial beings from space, although some people believe they are. And as long as they're not accusing Hillary Clinton of things, I'm fine with that. It's not my business. But like, I mean, we were just talking about The Shining. And one of the things that made me think of was like the real victory on Stanley Kubrick's part building off of Stephen King's is to like, make this movie that is universally beloved and seen as the scariest thing ever about someone attempting to kill their wife and child, which is, like, so commonplace a crime that we don't even bother to make that much TV about it. Right. It functions on that level, and it also functions on, like, the Muriel's wedding level, Mm. where it's like, he literally kills this woman. He's defined by his name, which is ego. He's trying to spread himself throughout the entire universe and try to get himself all over the place. He's like, he can't stop progress. (laughs) Yes! Right, exactly. exactly. Like, if he kills her literally or just kills her by way of him being himself over time, like, it functions on the same level. It's a great metaphor for abusive relationships Mm -hmm. when there, you know, is only room for one person's needs and wants and identity. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, like in Muriel's Wedding, of that there is a, a type of emotional and psychological abuse that just turns a person into a ghost. Mm. And that's how we see when we first meet Peter's mom, like that's what she looks, she looks like a ghost. Like she actually looks like a ghost and she's been turned into a husk by this guy. You know, do we think that there are critical theorists on the team at uh, Marvel, so like when they're whiteboarding <laughs> everything, you know that, that there's like there are people who deal there are people who deal with like the literal plot, and then there's just like a team of five critical theory nerds who are like, what is our through line here? Do you think that could possibly be true? Come on, they're not buying that many lunches. I think it could be true and it should be true, but I, I'm putting this out into the world for the next comic book franchise. Hire five critical theorists. It has to be five. Four <laughs> is too few, six is too many. Well, they need to argue and there needs to be enough of a group that they can, when they take a vote, it's never going to be a tie. <laughs> I know that Lucasfilm does have meetups like that where they they talk about, you know, of course they do, right? Um, I don't know about Marvel. They're like, how are we going to make this exactly like the last one? (laughs) (laughs) Ouch. (laughs) so true. (laughs) 
Gene, can I ask you a question? Because I've seen how excited you are about the the Phase Four Marvel properties, which are which are all the seems like all the new ones that are coming out. Do you think Marvel? in the whatever 12 or 13 years it's been going with the MCU has learned, you know, with WandaVision and, and, and newer properties that are coming out, has it learned how to treat the stories regarding conflicts involving women better? Um, I think it's getting there. I mean, I think the approach that they're taking that's working for them is that they're treating women like they're people. And I think that you can kind of see that like, hey, and and I but I think it's more of like the virtue of like, let if we focus on a woman and the movies about her, then by virtue of treating her like we would if it was a dude in the lead role, suddenly we're doing a lot of things better. Are we actually conscious of Mm. what maybe not of like, what are all the, you know, outspring consequences of our choices? I don't think so. And that's where I think that they do not have anybody who's really like looking deeper into the themes and stuff. Mm. Definitely think that they have Mm -hmm. ideas. They are trying to be better. If they are looking at it, it's really more on like a white feminism level of like, well, I read a thread. Mm -hmm. They're like, did we give enough lines to Gwyneth Paltrow? Right. (laughs) If they were more actively looking at some of these dynamics, they would, I mean, by virtue of understanding the topics, you would start to see change in how they treat the women of color. Mm -hmm. I mean, the fact that Mm -hmm. we're only just towards the end of however long this has been going on, which is many years, we're just starting to get black women Mm -hmm. into more visible roles. And even, you know, Mm -hmm. with all the stuff that they, you know, that I'm liking out of phase four so far, and I really liked WandaVision, I really feel they underserved Monica a great deal Mm. in ways that were like kind of embarrassingly ironic considering the context but again I think that's Hmm. you know not having an awareness of how these things spread out and likewise with this I've had problems with James Gunn stuff but I will give him credit of that he is way better than a lot of his contemporaries especially like (coughs) J.J. Abrams (laughs) of being able to take iconography or familiar cultural signifiers and weave them together in a way that we don't see exactly what he's doing. Although sometimes we do like, you know, Indiana Jones and whatnot, Mm -hmm. but we feel Mm. he's doing films as if somebody is communicating in gifts. We don't see the gifts he's using. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's just made out of memes. I will email you the list of the movies that um, that I came up with, uh, all the movies that would be companion views Ooh. for this, because I could cite exactly where he was getting his inspiration from. Mm. And I also made parallels of who characters were, like, Drax is definitely Conan and specifically the Arnold Schwarzenegger Conan, Ooh. especially in his drunken scenes. Yeah, Beautiful. I love that. Rocket is John Connor and Groot mm-hmm. is the T-800 from T2. <laughs> yeah. Oh my, oh my God, God, that's amazing. They exactly replicate the scene at the end where the T-800 kills himself, yeah. including the wiping of the tear. I remember I watched it in the theater and I was oh like, I have seen that scene before. Fuck you. I'm not <laughs> crying. Fuck you. <laughs> what I love about that so much is imagining baby Terminator in as baby Groot. Right? One scene that stood out to me, and again, it's like another wish fulfillment scene in a really big way, is so Michael Rooker has been an asshole this entire time. Yondo. Yondu. Yondu. He's been an asshole the whole time. We we learn a bit of his backstory to understand his rationale for being the way that he has been to uh, to Peter this whole time. Mm. We learn that he's been looking out for Peter more than we expected him to. And he's just been kind of a salty asshole, which, again, I relate to in a father figure a little bit. Mm-hmm. And he calls out Rocket, who himself is a salty (laughs) asshole. Mm. Yeah, and informs him that he recognizes in him that the reason he's being such a salty asshole is to cover all of the pain in his own life. Mm -hmm. Again, very convenient wish fulfillment. How much do we wish the Michael Rooker stepdads in our lives would have that realization for themselves and we Mm -hmm. could like look in at them having that realization. But I also love that scene so much. I love that these two hurt people realize for a second that the reason they are the way that they are is because they're hurt people. Yeah. Well, and I also think that like movies set up 
what we can imagine as possible or what we can aspire to. And I feel like just, you know, having movies where people have these scenes of emotional literacy that gives you something to dare to dream to imagine, especially if you're not getting it from, you know, the dad type people or the people in your life. Speaking of theme, like this wave of movies and shows and properties is so big that like the theme can't really be very complicated and carry over. But I feel like the theme of Avengers Endgame, which I feel like was in some ways trying to sort of sum up why we had just gone on such a big journey, was like, friendship is good. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, it is. I agree. I'm fully bought in. <laughs> and that was my experience. <laughs> Wait, is that, that's the one we saw in the theater together? Was yeah, in Nashville. Yeah, I remember, I remember how enthusiastically you came out and were like, this is just a movie about people being friends. Yes! And men admiring each other's butts. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Rightfully so. What are some wrapping Guardians of the Galaxy thoughts? And maybe talk about how it fits into the bigger universe or just talk about Guardians of the Galaxy. I don't care. You know, the first movie is very much like, you know, a bunch of kids forming a family, but they're still kids. Mm. The second movie is very much parenting is scary, <laughs> <laughs> you know, especially with the baby group dynamic mm -hmm. where Rocket went from kind of being the protected kid because you definitely see in that first movie that Groot is his muscle mm -hmm. and he gets away with a lot of things because he's got this giant 10 mm. foot tall tree that will kick anybody's ass if they talk back to him. And then he gets to now be Groot's protector in the second movie and kind of see what it's like to have this little ball of chaos that constantly wants to set everything on fire. And he's getting <laughs> to kind of go through that process, as is everybody else. But I do think that's a, an interesting dynamic that we get to see the father mm -hmm. dynamic happening with somebody other than Peter. Mm -hmm. And also seeing all the other characters kind of being learning how to be caretakers as they're figuring out their whole fam family dynamic. You know, I'm like, oh, this, no, I see the merit. This mm -hmm. is very sweet. They're, they're definitely, a, you know, a bunch of losers that are figuring out how to be winners while they're together. Space losers <laughs> is a great premise, generally. I wish, it's, it's nice to see a big property right? trying that. Space losers. <laughs> yeah, space losers, absolutely. Yeah, MST3K would be a space loser show, wouldn't it? Yes. I'm a really easy sell. Like, I really love any movie where, like, people do something as a team. If I'm really, you know, asking for, like, a cherry on top, I like it if they don't kill anybody. But I'm also, you know, I'm an American. That cuts out most movies for me. Right. <laughs> I love the idea of their kids in the first movie and then they're like just kind of figuring out how to be together as as like seasoned new come together family. Like the first movie's Days and Confused and the second movie's The Big Chill. <laughs> they all have to just learn how to be messy ass adults together. I, I, I don't know. I feel like it's pointless to be like there are too many superhero movies. There need to be less superhero movies and then there could be more other movies. Like I don't think that's true. Let's just like let's just make lots of superhero movies and then the more they are, the weirder they can be. And that is what I want. And I feel like these, I feel like Guardians of the Galaxy, both of these movies, but especially the first one, were like, seem to me to be meaningful steps in proving that audiences like weird superhero movies. No, I agree. And I, I think that there are two feelings that, are not really conflicting, but there's overlap. One of those feelings is just like, I don't like corporate retread garbage. And it's like, <laughs> well, good luck. <laughs> yeah. And I think a lot of times people see the two as synonymous for good reason, because there is a lot of overlap there. But like, I think superhero movies are incredibly important. Yeah. Anything an eight-year-old can pay attention to all or most of is incredibly important. Exactly. And again, like the archetypes for these stories are thousands of years old. And I think mm -hmm. that you're right when you're talking about a volume game where you can start expanding upon how you tell those stories and maybe invert some of the expectations of those stories, particularly with regard to mm -hmm. gender, race, various power dynamics that weren't articulated in the original tellings of the stories. That's great. 
it nails the fact that like all comic books have different tones too. And so, mm. you know, like mm-hmm. the characters in different comic books have, there's a different tonal universe, even though they share the same right. universe as the other characters. And I like that that's what this did. Just like how we live in different tonal universes yeah. from each other. I live in a very different tonal universe than most people. <laughs> right, exactly. And then later on in the movies, I found, found one of the most fun things that they ended up doing. And I mean, you it's fun to then watch watch all these people interact because it's funny Mm -hmm. to see people in different tonal universes have to get along. (laughs) And one of the things I do really like about what Marvel is doing, which comics did and which, you know, going back to Greek theater, it's creating an archetype. We all now know what a Tony Stark is like, what Iron Man means. Mm. If you're watching Falcon and the Winter Soldier, I think it's, directly addressing this this notion of an archetype separate from a person and what that means and they're doing it with the language of Mm. superheroes and that's kind of what it's all doing and and so that like these movies allow us to take that what does a hero look like what is a hero whose name and and visage is tied to a country what does that mean to us and that's what these movies are Hmm. you know and now tv shows are allowing us to deconstruct like you i am not tired of superhero movies i just want them to say new and interesting things and i think they are it's taking its time to get there yeah we know who a couple of dads are Who is the daddy? Well, it's a tie for me. I can't let the opportunity to give Michael Rooker the daddy title slip out of my fingers. He's just like presenting his weird head to you. Like they had to get him in a mohawk too and then had to get him calling himself Mary Poppins. And then that line that like, you know, it is the most unsubtle, obvious line about, you know, he may be your father, but he wasn't your daddy. And then... Uh, and like, and I didn't cry, I didn't cry, but I was like, again, I was angrily like, fuck you, James Gunn, fuck you, I know what you tried to do there, fuck you, (laughs) but yeah, no, like, daddy for sure, but I do feel like Gamora, as far as, like, the Guardians Mm. dynamic, like, who's the daddy of the person who, you know is getting them through things like, you know, dueling piloting of a ship through a meteor (laughs) shower. Mm -hmm. She's the one that keeps everybody alive and somewhat together. So in that dynamic, she's the daddy. Alex, I feel like you got to say your favorite line. What is my favorite line? I'm Mary Poppins, (laughs) y'all. I love it. It's so sweet. It's perfect in that, like, you, Sarah, you made you made this point mm-hmm. on Twitter today where it's like that Peter Quill's been just making pop culture references for 28 years and somehow just still <laughs> doing it and, like, humoring the fact that no one has any idea what he's talking about. But it also is perfect because, like, I love, in my experience, my dad had zero frame of reference for whatever yeah. I was talking about at any point and, like, had no idea what was going on and would, you know, I mean, obviously not this because it's so obvious, but, like, would believe that Mary Poppins was a guy, you know, like that sort of thing. And would say, is he cool? Yeah, exactly. It's so obtuse. And that's that's what hit me the hardest of that line is I was like, yeah, man, that's, that's yeah. right on. I truly do have to say Michael Rooker, both in character and it just, it's a joy to see him on screen. He's so great. Yes. Yeah, yeah, that's how I feel. And then Groot in the first one. I think Groot's big sacrifice for everybody. I like the idea of someone making a sacrifice and helping everybody out. It's it's very basic, but I enjoy it. And then becoming a little twig. These films also teach you about the miracle of propagation, which is that if you kill most <laughs> of a plant, you, it doesn't matter. You so still have a that. little bit. <laughs> Sarah, what's your take? I agree with both of you, but I want to add a new character to the mix and say Nebula because I feel like she's a character who, you know, does the thing that we want in our, our ideal daddies, which is that she grows. Like, she recognizes that, you know, she needs to change her behavior despite the fact that, like, the amount of pain she has been through is, you know, I don't know. I think there's something that happens where, like, you know, it's not like it's morally better to, like, forgive people or move on or stop hanging on to your trauma or letting your trauma dictate your life because you're not in control of that. But if you have the resources to to step out of that a little bit, then, like, 
it's a triumph and it's really hard. And she did that. And you can tell that she's one of the characters who's had a distinct growth pattern because she's one of the people who you can like tell apart from the different timelines and endgame. <laughs> and so that, you know, changing is a daddy move. So I'm adding Nebula in too. Right. Soft butch. Gotta love her. Jean, where can people find you on the internet? Find me. Um, I'm usually, I'm always on Twitter at fangirljean. Um, and that's F-A-N-G-I-R-L-J-E-A-N-N-E. That's the French spelling. And everywhere else you can, you know, fangirljean.com, but I'm mostly on Twitter and uh, I'm currently doing a long thread about middle-class horror. Mm. You know, the gender and racial dynamics involved in that. Awesome. Thank you so much for doing this. We're stoked to have you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for this opportunity and for being so accommodating of, you know, pandemic times. (laughs) It's And also, like, even if it weren't pandemic times, it's like we're just a bunch of space losers trying to have it all so (laughs) (laughs) all right everybody that is it for this episode of wire dads thank you so much to fangirl gene for talking about guardians of the galaxy with sarah and me it was fantastic thank you to carolyn kendrick for producing our show and making it sound so great thank you to fresh lesh for the beats and making uh making the transitions so lovely thank you for listening you can find us on social media at instagram and twitter at yr dads you can find sarah and me individually on twitter as well you can find me on tiktok i know i'm too old for it but i've been enjoying it and uh there's some pluses and minuses. <laughs> so if you're a person who's over there, come and find me. Next week, what's it going to be? I think next week is our Shining episode. We're going to get into it. It's just Sarah and me. It's going to be an intimate chat about The Shining, the book, and the movie. All right. We really appreciate you. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful day. <laughs>